Hi everyone, welcome to Baby Steps Nutrition, a podcast that focuses on nutrition, health, and wellness for families of children of all ages and stages. I'm your host, Argavon Neil Forouge, a pediatric dietitian and mom of two young children. My goal is to bring you impactful information that you can apply every day in a simplified, practical form to make life easier. Now let's get into today's conversation. According to the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, as of 2018, almost 1 in 5 children between the ages of 2 to 19 years old are obese, which is over 14 million children. This percentage is even higher in certain populations, sometimes as high as 1 in 4 children. This means that those children are at or above the 95th percentile. With the current global pandemic, we are seeing obesity statistics soar to new proportions, resulting in higher rates of physical and mental illness in both children and adults. What can we do as caregivers, healthcare providers, and really anyone who cares about the future of our children's health and well-being? Today's guest is an extraordinary pediatric specialist who uses lifestyle medicine to prevent, treat, and possibly reverse chronic disease. Dr. Lee Ettinger is a pediatric obesity specialist and founder of Dr. Herbivore. Dr. Ettinger obtained his Doctor of Medicine from Tufts University School of Medicine in 1998 in Boston, Massachusetts, then completed his pediatric residency at the Children's Hospital at Dartmouth in Lebanon, New Hampshire. He went on to obtain his Pediatric Nephrology Fellowship at the Children's Hospital at Montefiore, the Bronx, and a Master's in Science at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx, New York, in 2004. Dr. Edinger is board certified in general pediatrics, pediatric nephrology, and obesity medicine. He has a certificate in plant-based nutrition from E. Cornell. His many accolades include the New York Metro Area Top Doctor Award for the past six years, to name just a few. To say it's an honor to have you here, Dr. Edinger, is an understatement. Welcome to the Baby Steps Nutrition Podcast. Well, thanks a lot for having me, Argument. I look forward to our discussion. I'm curious to go back. You refer to yourself as Dr. Herbivore. Where did that name originate from? Yes, well, when I wanted to start my own private practice addressing the pediatric obesity medicine after leaving my hospital-based pediatric obesity uh, practice, I really wanted to set myself apart and um, try to be clear about what I was offering. So I wanted doctor to be in the name because I worked hard to get my medical degree. I paid a lot of money, spent a lot of time. So I wanted to also set myself apart from other people who may have other degrees, uh, different kinds of programs that are addressing this problem. And then I really like the term herbivore. Uh, I thought it really describes what uh, I'm trying to accomplish is to help like the American Academy of Pediatrics says that children should be eating more fruits and vegetables. So I'm just trying to encourage that. But I like the term herbivore because it reminds me that uh, I'm plant-based. I, I only eat plants. And it reminds me that as a herbivore, I'm part of the Earth's ecosystem, that I'm like the other animals and insects, and that uh, we're all just kind of renters on this planet, and uh, that uh, we should leave it in a good shape for the next group of inhabitants. Um, then also as a herbivore, I, I really have no desire to eat other earthlings. I'm not a carnivore or omnivore, right? consider myself an herbivore. And then lastly, when I'm thinking about being an herbivore, an herbivore has to constantly be worried about predators. And what's our main predator these days? And that's disease, like obesity, like diabetes, like hypertension, heart disease. So uh, there are many studies that have shown that having a herbivore diet uh, will reduce the risk of those diseases. So for all those reasons, I think that herbivore really uh, captures what I'm trying to express uh, as the ideal diet. And um, another struggle that I had was in this hospital-based pediatric weight management clinic, I would often 
suggest, hey, would you consider eating less meat or would you consider stopping eating meat? And that was met with a lot of families in shock. Uh, you know, uh, so at least uh, if someone's seeking me out as Dr. Herbore, they at least know we're going to talk about eating more plant-based. They're going to, we're going to talk about reducing animal consumption. I love that. And because it's right there in your name, and I'm sure if someone sees it and they've never heard the term before, it just automatically makes them go and want to look it up. So just there, you're raising awareness too and, and spreading education just in the name itself. I yeah, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes the kids are like, oh, so you want me to be a dinosaur? Because uh, they, they, they think of like the classic herbivore dinosaurs and things like that. I'm like, no, 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 let's, let's, uh, let's modernize that term. Yes, I can see my kids asking that very same question. Um, very interesting. Um, but what is alarming, you know, I grew up in Toronto, Canada and moving to the United States and working with a lot of children in children's hospitals it's this alarming rates of obesity. You know, we have what's called an obesity epidemic in this country. What factors do you think put certain individuals more at risk than others? Well, I think we're all at risk. Uh, we're all at risk. Uh, becoming obese it can happen so so easily. And I think the main problem, the main issue that we're de dealing with is that we're in an evolutionary mismatch. Uh, and this was nicely described in, in a book by Dr. Dr. Lyle called The Pleasure Trap, but he also has a TED talk about it too. But the evolutionary mismatch is that Homo sapiens has been around on this planet for 200 to 250,000 years. And for most of that time, we were seeking calories that were hard to find. And only recently do we find ourselves with abundant calories, but we still have this instinct to seek out calories. And our brain rewards ourselves with uh, all the happy chemicals, the serotonin and the opioids and the dopamine, when we find calories because we're happy we're going to survive another day. Uh, so that was a very good program, a very good solution to help us seek out these calories and reward us for finding calories 100,000 years ago. But nowadays, uh, the calories are too, too abundant. So we're getting these reward systems all the time and it's encouraging our brain to think that we're doing the right thing by seeking out these calories and getting the calories but it's become unfortunately leading to more uh more harm than good yes and uh he describes that as the pleasure trap and in pediatrics uh, after reading his his book the pleasure trap i thought to myself well you know maybe there's this parent trap going on too uh because as parents and i'm a father of three uh I want to feed my children and I want to maybe even overfeed my children to make sure they survive. So I, and I hear that a lot of, from parents of families that I'm working with, that it can be hard to feed your kid less calories because uh, we have this instinctual dr drive to uh, help our, our, our kids th thrive and, and survive. So we want them to have that little extra fat on them, maybe to survive the upcoming famine, the upcoming winter, but that famine, that winter isn't coming. Mm. And I think also the food industry has tapped into this pleasure trap. So they also know what's happening, you know, with our current society and, you know, a lot of emotional eating. And like you said, a lot of the brain chemicals. And so it's this, you know, it's just coming at us at all times with the messaging and, and advertisement, right. And product placement on shelves. So I think it's creating even yeah. greater challenges for families. I know, you know, I've taken my kids and, and I watch them. And of course, right, they gravitate towards the pictures and the colors. And, um, and of course, we know that there are certain ingredients that are being put in products to enhance taste and, you know, create that addiction. So it is so difficult uh, for families. And as we know, with healthcare professionals, we even know more. But, you know, with our kids, we're seeing it, too scary stuff. Yeah, I call I call that the profit trap. <laughs> um, right. So like if I'm feeding a child, you know, a lot of parents say, oh, my, my child's picky eater. They won't eat. Uh, they won't eat vegetables or something like that. But you can imagine, uh, you know, a child who knows that there's ice cream and is being fed asparagus. Uh, the child's not being a picky eater. They're, they're being like uh, mom, dad, caregiver, grandparent, whoever is feeding me, they're supposed to be nourishing me and nurturing me. And you're giving me this lower calorie food. That's not going to help with my survival. I need the higher calorie food. And then what you're describing from the food industry is the profit trap is that they, they're giving us the foods that, uh, 
that uh, give them the highest profit. And they, you know, a, a child is saying, I can't survive on that lower calorie food. A food company is saying, I can't survive selling foods that uh, don't, don't give me as much profit. So we're all, we're all in this trap. Yes. Uh, let's talk about this plant strong diet. I love that term. And why do you advise it over other diets for your pediatric patients? Well, uh, looking at the studies, looking at the research, um, you know, I first learned about the plant-based diet about seven years ago, and um, I didn't hear about it in a medical setting. I actually heard about it from from a cyclist, and uh, I was thinking, oh, that, that's interesting. Let me let me see. I don't see how that would quite work out. So I looked into it and started to you know watch the food documentaries and read the books by the experts and the scientists and look at the scientific studies. And then went and got the certificate in plant based nutrition, which really delves into the science. And it just seems to make a lot of sense to me. Um, a lot of the studies are observa observational studies and those have their problems, but there are some good interventional studies also that show the benefit, but it really boils down to calorie density and uh, having foods that are low calorie density, having foods that are high fiber and high water content so that you can feel full on these fruits and vegetables and starches that uh, have a lot of vitamins and minerals, but not a lot of calories. So it works. It, I tried it. It worked for me. And I started to work with families uh, and it was working for them. And uh, it really has a lot of benefits uh, to eat, really eat the whole foods. The whole goal is to eat foods that look like they came out of the ground or off the tree before they went through a factory because uh, the factory is what uh, processes the foods, takes a lot of the fiber, a lot of the water out and perhaps adds oils or perhaps adds added sugars, and then you get the packaged foods that really condense the calories. So you increase the calorie density. So you can eat the same weight of food, uh, but it gets so much more calories. So I like to say that you can eat a pound of potatoes and uh, feel very full and get 400 calories, or you can eat a pound of potato chips, which are the potatoes that went through the factory, and uh, get 2,300 calories. You feel the same afterwards eating a pound of food but uh, you've taken in so many more calories eating the potato chips. Uh, but then that also gets into the pleasure trap is that that higher calorie, higher salt food is what our mind and our body thinks that we need to survive. And so that's why it's so hard to give up the, uh, the potato chips and just eat the, potato, the plain baked potato. But at least the plain baked potato is equally, can be equally filling with less calories. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Editor, if there are people that associate the plant-based diet or herbivore diet with more of an animal rights perspective rather than a nutrition one, what would you say to those families? I mean, we obviously know that it is high in nutrition, but what is it that they need to know about the benefits of it? Yeah, so I want to kind of get a sense of the person that I'm working with, what they, what inspires them, um, and for certainly especially the teenagers who are uh, really looking up to their social media icons or music stars, rock stars. Uh, Billie Eilish is a, is a very popular vegan activist now, um, or athletes. So um, when I'm working with someone and they say, oh, you know, I, I care about the animals, then I'm happy to, to help them realize how their food choices can help align with their, their values. Or if I'm working with someone who's an athlete and, I, and they're like, well, I just want to improve my performance uh, on the playing field, I can hopefully find someone in their, in their uh, sport that's plant-based and is talking about it. Uh, but if yeah, someone is saying, oh, I, I care about the environment, then I can uh, help them understand how their food choices will help uh, with their environmental concerns. Uh, for example, you, know, you talk about the plant-based uh, milk alternatives. Uh, uh, there are studies that show like the almond milk uh, it takes a lot of water and land to grow an almond tree uh, versus the oat milk. So someone who's looking to go plant-based for the environment, I might steer more towards the oat milk versus the almond milk. So I try to understand what is going to motivate a, a family or a child, uh, whether it's for their health or for the environment or for the animals and uh, help them make the choices that are in alignment with those goals. That's great. So it sounds like you meet them where they are and you start with their uh, area of concern and you go from there. 
Yeah, yeah. That's great. And I'm just curious, you know, I know there is a lot of information out there about the importance and benefits of plant-based diet. Do you get a lot of resistance with your clients or do you feel like it's 50-50 and maybe more, uh, more people are more, you know, amenable to getting that information or making changes in their life? In, in my hospital-based uh, pediatric practice where I wasn't advertising yet as Dr. Hervor, yeah, I did meet a lot of resistance uh, uh, when I would introduce the topic. Uh, you know, it it's, uh, can be quite a shock, quite a new concept to people that, uh, that the animal products are so pervasive in our society and so uh, potentially harmful and, and can uh, lead to obesity um, because of the high calorie density of animal products too. And, and going back to the calorie density, I think of animal, all animal products as uh, processed food also, because as the previous example I made with the potato going through the factory to become the potato chip, if you have uh, corn on the cob, for example, and you eat the corn on the cob, you'll get a few hundred calories per pound. But if you give the corn on the cob to the cow, the corn to the cow, uh, then the cow will take out the fiber and the water and uh, add cholesterol and add fat and add salt, and you get the steak, uh, which has 1,200 calories per pound, so much more uh, than the corn itself. So some foods are doubly processed also. So you give the corn to the cow and get the milk and then put the milk through the factory and get the ice cream or butter or yogurt. So each step along the way increases the, the calorie density. So I try to explain when people were asking me, um, you know, why, was I saying such outlandish things as to decrease meat intake or animal product intake? I would just uh, go to the math and say, look, uh, you know, the, uh, although what you've heard about the, the, that you need the meat or the dairy or the, or the fish for your, for your health, let me show you uh, how it's actually such high calorie density that uh, in this day and age we don't need such a high calorie density to thrive and survive, and it might be the cause of the obesity. So when uh, people would uh, resist or be confused as to why I was saying such things like to decrease animal intake, I would just you know, break out the numbers, break out the, the math and just show them that we don't need such high calorie density foods right now, especially if you're obese and you're trying to lose weight. So some people kind of got it uh, mm -hmm. and some people remained resistant. Um, and uh, that's why I really wanted to set myself apart as a doctor herbivore. And uh, so when people are seeking me out now, they at least uh, overcome that initial hurdle and are agreeable to hearing more about the plant-based diet. Mm -hmm. And to your point, I think this consumer awareness is so important, like really knowing where your food comes from, things that you purchase that you bring into your home, where all of those come from, and everything that you touched upon, all the steps that involves getting from, you know, X to, to Z or A to Z are important. So having that education, absolutely. Now, Dr. Edinger, you focus on obesity management with diet and lifestyle only. And if medication is needed for your clients, you refer to subspecialists. Why do you take this approach? Well, I was a pediatric nephrologist for 16 years, and I prescribed a lot of medicine during that time, a lot of necessary medicine, uh, certainly. Uh, but as I changed my role and wanted to address more of the obesity epidemic, then uh, since I feel that in the obesity epidemic, the medicines are almost like band-aids that um, uh, really to get to the source of the problem. Uh, certainly with kidney disease, it's very difficult or nearly impossible to get to the source of the problem and you need the medicines and you need dialysis and you need transplants. Certainly all those are important and necessary. But um, obesity, I think, is a different kind of problem where we have uh, just too many calories around. As I described, we're in an evolutionary mismatch. We're driven for these calories. So I really want people to try to understand uh, that they don't need all those calories. And I try to work with them on diet and lifestyle uh, to reduce their calorie density of their foods. So use more plants uh, to fill up on the uh, lower calorie, higher fiber, higher water content foods, and really try to address the root of the problem, which is that uh, that that we're eating too much calories, uh, too much highly concentrated foods 
with uh, the fats, the added sugars, and the salts. So uh, if I can really address that problem, hopefully the person doesn't need to go on uh, medicines, uh, doesn't need to have bariatric surgery. Uh, and I'm dealing with the pediatric population ages 2 to 21. So there aren't uh, approved medicines for younger kids at this point. Uh, in the past few years, the American Academy of Pediatrics has started to encourage bariatric surgery for adolescents and young adults, thinking that a lifetime of uh, obesity has greater risk than a lifetime of, of dealing with the issue with surgery and reducing the risk of obesity. Um, so I'm really trying to help people understand how they can make uh, take control of their own health with diet and lifestyle. And that gets into a locus of control issue, is that um, I try to get a sense from the families what their locus of control is. Uh, a person with an internal locus con of control believes that their own choices and their own hard work will determine their fate, whereas a person with an external lo locus of control uh, believes in luck or some outside force or some outside uh, powerful person that determines their fate. And I'm not passing judgment on one or the other. For example, when my uh, when my oil change light comes on on my dashboard, I have an external locus of control. I want to take my car to the mechanic to get the oil changed. And it would be quite strange that mechanic is the uh, powerful other person who's going to solve my problem. It would be quite strange if I went to the mechanic and the mechanic says, OK, I want you to take your car home and then go through these steps to change the oil. Um, so if uh, it, that would be him expect the mechanic, him or her expecting me to have an internal locus of control to fix my own problem. So uh, for many years, I was the as the nephrologist, I was the uh, people had my patients had an external locus of control. They had a problem that they couldn't fix, a kidney problem. I they would come to me and I would prescribe medicine. I would uh, do dialysis. I would arrange for a kidney transplant when necessary. So that was me fixing their their problem for them. Uh, but I really am trying to find people who have an internal locus of control. So a patient with obesity who wants help fixing their problem, but wants to do it themselves. So I show them the, the ways, the dietary changes and lifestyle changes so that they can fix their problem themselves. So that, that's uh, uh, how I try to understand what they are. Now, if someone comes to me and says, to help for help with their obesity like oh i thought you're supposed to send me for bariatric surgery oh i thought uh, you're supposed to prescribe medicines for me that's what i really need uh i can't fix my own problem and certainly again no judgment uh, one way or the other i'm certainly uh, happy to refer them to appropriate sources for the medicines when they're old enough and the medicines are approved and for um for bariatric surgery if that's indicated. So getting a sense of someone's locus of control can help me better help them. Mm. And I'm interested to know how many people that you see come to see you already on medication. You know, we know right now a lot of people are on cocktails, meaning multiple medications, and then they make these dietary and lifestyle changes, and then they slowly diminish or completely get off their medication that they were on before. Yeah, as a pediatric nephrologist, pediatricians in the community would refer me patients with high blood pressure because in the pediatric world, high blood pressure can often be due to a kidney problem. So I would meet them, uh, rule out a kidney problem, a heart problem, a hormone problem, and then be sitting there with a young person whose uh, body mass index was 35, and I'd say, let's start to talk about uh, what you're eating and what your lifestyle is like, uh, sleep, um, all those kind of important lifestyle factors and it gave me great pleasure to work with them and help them lose weight and help them get off of their blood pressure medicine or not have to start a blood pressure medicine when their when their diet and lifestyle improves so that was that was wonderful so yeah if if i can help someone get off of a medicine or avoid a medicine all the better um, it's interesting i i would see young adults uh, college kids especially who with obesity who are already put on a, uh, a anti-obesity medicine, uh, usually by an endocrinologist or their primary care doctor. And um, some of them had benefits from it, some of them had unpleasant side effects from it. But if, yeah, if we could uh, work with them on diet and lifestyle, that would, that would be, a, that'd be wonderful. I'll tell you this, uh, in all my years of practicing medicine, uh, usually when I would start a medicine for someone, they'd say, wow, do I, you know, do I have to take this for the rest of my life? You know, that 
it wasn't always a, a happy occasion. Um, whereas when I was able to work with someone and get them off of medicine, you know, that's when they, they're appreciative there. Thanks. Uh, I gave them the tools. Uh, they did all the work, uh, again, with that internal locus of control, but uh, they're usually very appreciative and would give me a nice, a nice pat on the back uh, when I was able to help them in that way. And that felt good. Yes, and I'm sure you know this already, but when you're working with teens and older children, they have more autonomy and independence and control over their own health care. But when you're working with the younger kids, you're really speaking to the whole entire family. And then you see a lot of the generational stuff too. So you're really educating the whole family unit, even though you're treating just the child. Yeah, the eight-year-old isn't uh, food shopping or, or cooking dinner usually, so... Yeah, that, that's uh, always a challenge is getting more of the family on board, especially the, uh, the person who's food shopping and preparing the meals. Yeah. So then is that something you would advise for the whole family to start making those changes? It's, I think it's better and easier if the whole family is working together rather than singling out one child or one person in the family to make the changes. Uh, the there's going be, there can be a lot of temptation around a kitchen and around a pantry. And if only one person is trying to avoid that temptation, and again, with the pleasure trap, uh, the brain might think it's the right choice to eat the bag of Oreo cookies when it's become the wrong choice. Uh, I prefer to not have the bag of Oreo cookies around, but that can be hard if the whole family's not on board. Yes. And we've seen compliance and adherence as well as higher when uh, there are support around. Yes. That's great. Um, Dr. Adija, I want to sort of switch gears here. You are a father of three children. I'm curious to know how fatherhood has changed or impacted the way you practice pediatric medicine. Hmm. Yeah, uh, it's definitely been enlightening and an experience uh, to have my own kids and see them go through the various developmental changes and stages and trying to feed them. Uh, my kids are teens now. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think what's, what was interesting is uh, ever since I was in medical school and a doctor, a family, you know, when we're presenting uh, difficult choices to the family as the medical team, family would often turn to me and say, well, what would you do if it was your child? And before I had kids, I had an, an easy out. I would feel like, well, I don't have kids. I can't possibly imagine what you're going through. Um, after I had kids, I, I uh, you know, uh, it still is very difficult to imagine what a parent is going through when their child is, is has a chronic illness or is acutely uh, hospitalized. So, uh, but the but the the question sat with me differently after I, I had kids of my own, uh, certainly. So that was the biggest change. Uh, although you know uh, maybe again it's the locus of control. It's they're 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 not uh, able to make their own decision and they want a an outside force to make their decision, the doctor, for example, yes. I, would be, uh, I would be very careful. Uh, certainly I can never make uh, such a decision for a parent like that. And my role is to provide as much information as possible to the family so they can make the best informed decision that they could. Um, but yeah, that was always a tough conversation. But what's been interesting is seeing my, my kids who we've been, I've been plant-based now for seven years and, and uh, we started feeding them, um, my wife and I, we started feeding them plant-based at home and seeing how they reacted and seeing that, you know, that we changed from dairy milk to almond milk and it took them about two weeks to even notice. Um, so that was, that was interesting. But uh, seeing how they behave with friends and, um, and in social situations and yeah, it can be hard. It can be hard to be different. It can be, uh, that's really the hardest part of eating plant-based is that, uh, uh, you don't have to be hungry. Like you can eat very filling foods that are lower calorie density. Uh, you don't need to um, really starve yourself or feel um, like you're not getting enough food and energy. Uh, and uh, the really hard part is eating differently than everyone else. You know, when you go to the barbecue, not having the barbecue. When you go to the ball game, not having the hot dog. Well, Thanksgiving is coming up, and yes. uh, you know it could be a challenge to be around the table with everyone enjoying their turkey. Um, but then, kind of, you kind of actually step out of society a little bit. You kind of step back and and at this point realize that well, uh, was as you the statistics you mentioned at the start is that 
uh, the podcast is that so many people are dealing with obesity. So many people are dealing with uh, diabetes and lifestyle related diseases, heart disease and things like that, that if I'm going to eat like everyone else, then I'm at risk of getting all these problems that everyone else is having. So uh, in a way, not eating like everyone else may be a better choice for you. So um, that's how I reassure myself when I'm in social situations. It's like, I'm not eating like everyone else. I don't want to have their their health problems. Um, so uh, that, and that can be hard for, for teenagers to understand. Although I do event, I occasionally get the rebellious teenager who is, uh, you know, certainly uh, they're asserting their independence and they're not going to eat what is put in front of them on the table. And uh, that's their own way of kind of rebellion. Uh, some teenagers start smoking, some teenagers go vegan. Uh, so as best as I can support them so that they're doing it in a healthy way. Um, but yeah, seeing seeing how my kids re- have reacted to uh, the dietary changes at home and, and social situations, I hope helps me appreciate the challenges that that my families that I'm working with are going through too. And I'm sure with three teenagers, there are lots of questions. So you always have to maybe not have the answers right away, but eventually have those answers. So they almost challenge you to stay really abreast, abreast of the latest information. Yes. And they, uh, it's fun. They bring me information too, which is yes. nice. Yes. Yes. Um, what are your thoughts on, you know, speaking of teenagers, social media, uh, internet, what are your thoughts on all the cleanses, the detoxes, supplements, superfoods that we all hear about? Well, I practice evidence-based medicine. So I work with families on information and recommendations that are stood the test of studies uh, that have been um, consensus statements from major organizations, things like that. So these uh, things that you're mentioning, the cleanses and, and supplements and all this stuff, it really, if, um, if, I, if I don't see a good study backing it up, then I'm not going to recommend it. Um, and a lot of that is marketing. And especially when you're talking like detoxes and cleanses and stuff like that, uh, I do... Uh, I do worry about uh, things that are kind of, yeah, maybe potentially harmful. Uh, a lot of the vegans and influencers that you see out there that uh, drop plant-based or stop going uh, vegan, uh, and they post like, "Oh, uh, all my hair fell out," or you know, all, you know, here's the reasons why I stopped veganism, or started eating meat again um, and uh, you look back and you see what they're eating and and it's just it's too restrictive it's like you can't be a uh, an influencer who's doing a amazing travel and sports event you know athletic accomplishments or or uh, cooking shows and stuff if you're only eating 800 calories a day it's like right. that's a recipe for disaster um, I really try to encourage this to be a very bountiful diet and that you should feel full and have energy um, you know if you're eating a little tiny salad and doing cleanses and stuff like that that's really going to take away your energy i want the young people to go out and make a change in the world make the world a better place and to do that uh, you need energy and you need calories and so you need on the plant-based diet because it is the calorie density is so low uh, you really actually need to eat more food and that's a that's a change in mentality that you want to be full and energized um, so yeah, I, I don't recommend those kind of things. And then, and again, this also with the superfoods. Again, I'd like to see studies, and uh, not just marketing material. Um, there's only one real thing that's missing in the plant-based diet, uh, through nobody's fault, but it's uh, vitamin B12. That um, our food is too clean. That vitamin B12 is made by soil bacteria. So now you have vegetables and produce that's triple washed or hydroponically grown uh, and just uh, isn't exposed to enough of the soil bacteria to pass on vitamin b12 to us so if you're only eating plants then you're missing out on the b12 that's in the animal products because the animals are fed uh, dirty food uh, dirty corn and soybeans and grains and uh, the animals are living in the dirt so they're getting exposed to the vitamin b12 and then package it into their animal product and pass on. So I do recommend that uh, that someone who is eating vegan or someone who is eating wholly plant based that they take a vitamin B twelve supplement. Um, so that that is the one. Uh, and then 
we can. You, there are other things that people worry about that that I work with uh, families on for sure. But uh, really important to take the vitamin B twelve. Mm. And just going back to you know those cleanses, detoxes, supplements we talked about. I think we're also we live in a culture of extremism. So people eat a certain way, and then they feel a certain way, and then the feelings that are associated with eating that way, and then they you know swing the pendulum and go the other way and then start doing these calorie deficit diets and supplements. And then it's just this back and forth of, you know, unhealthy habits. But I really, I hope my goal, especially for the younger generation is to bring that pleasure back into eating and eating food for nutrition and enjoyment and the balance, really. I think that's what we're missing in this world. I mean, people think that uh, vegans or plant-based eaters are just walking around all day longing for a cheeseburger but it i i I don't find it restrictive i find it almost liberating it's liberating in that um uh, the the decision has been made the choice has been made you know people make about two it's estimated 200 choices about food what they're going to eat or what they're planning to eat every day but when you're eating plant-based they're just there's less choices it's like yeah when i go to the barbecue i know i'm not going to eat the pork I'm uh, just not, it just doesn't exist in my world because I'm an herbivore and I'm not uh, going to eat it. Uh, so, you know, when, when presented in the office with, with the donuts, <laughs> you know, someone who's uh, practicing moderation or, or doesn't have a firm line drawn in the sand, they have to debate, oh, well, I had a healthy breakfast. I had a healthy lunch. I can have this, this treat now. Um, so it's a constantly a negotiation and a rationalization of this choice and that choice. But when you're plant-based, when you're a vegan, when you're an herbivore, um, you just wake up every day and you just know what you're not going to eat. And it's as if the food doesn't even exist. Uh, you know, when you get to the end of the grocery store aisle and there's all that candy there, all that milk chocolate, uh, should I have one? I made, I made a bunch of good, healthy decisions throughout the store. Let me reward myself with a, with a, a candy bar, a milk chocolate. Uh, but, you know, Someone who's plant-based, they get to the end of the aisle and they're like, these foods don't even exist. They're not, they, no, they no longer tempt. And uh, the taste buds change also. So it's a, way, it's a way to create, as we're in this evolutionary mismatch, it's a way to create scarcity. Uh, there are whole restaurants that I have no desire to eat in. There are whole aisles of the grocery store that I have no desire. I don't even go in because there's no food there that I want to purchase. So it's like um, my grocery store is smaller. Uh, it's a way as we're in this evolutionary mismatch where there's just too many calories around. It's a simple and easy way uh, to create that scarcity. And it's not something I have to think about at all when I'm in the grocery store. It's my, my path through the grocery store uh, doesn't go down those aisles. So. Uh, I find it actually kind of re- relieves all that uh, that moderation, that choosing this over that healthy choices, trying to make healthy choices all day long. It's actually kind of easier. Yes. And I know we've been talking about obesity and we've been using the word obese throughout this episode, but we also know in healthcare, it's not just obesity, but we're concerned about prediabetes, we're concerned about insulin resistance, high blood pressure, and we're seeing that in younger and younger children. Uh, Where do you see the future of childhood going with the current rate of chronic diseases and life expectancy statistics? Well, I am worried. That's uh, part of my, what inspires me to work on this problem, to work on this pediatric obesity problem, is I am worried about uh, the trends, uh, as you can see, uh, as you described in the start, and year after year, just more and more uh, young people are are becoming obese. And since the obesity affects health over years and decades, uh, it doesn't bode well for the future. Uh, as you said, diabetes and hypertension, things like that. So uh, that is a, a a concern of mine, and that is what it, you know inspires me to work on the Dr. Herbivore project and and helping young people make healthier choices, more plant-based choices. And uh, I'm worried about climate change too and how that might impact food insecurity around the regions. But uh, one of the benefits of the plant-based diet is the benefits for the environment also, because whenever you're going to grow plants and feed plants to animals and then feed the animals to humans, that's going to use more land and resources and water. 
and just growing the plants and humans eating the plants. So I'm uh, hoping to address a whole bunch of problems that uh, we're looking, looking at over the next few decades by trying to help people eat more plants and less animal products. Mm. And we're seeing these advances in medical technology, but really the future currently looks very bleak in terms of the health status of our citizens. What are your thoughts there? Well, yes, hopefully, you know, the technology will help. Um, it's, uh, again, back to the locus of control issue. So certainly there will be people who will seek out and will need uh, and will benefit from uh, future surgeries, uh, future medicines to address the uh, the uh, obesity epidemic, diabetes and hypertension. So yes, and certainly we should be putting effort, efforts and money and science and research into such technologies. Uh, and then, you know, we, we, I feel like we kind of know the answer now. And for those who have an internal locus of control and want the tools to figure out how to help their, their feet and their forks move better, then there will be people like me and like you who are trying to educate people on, on healthier eating and lifestyles. Perfectly said. And Dr. Edgerton, I'm just curious, uh, outside of, you know, your passion and, and your focus on your pediatric patients and families, what are your hobbies and self-care activities when you want to unwind? Oh, uh, yeah, I enjoy time with my family. I guess my, my number one passion, though, is really cycling. I really enjoy cycling, uh, all aspects of it. And uh, uh, it's really a time for me to get away from all the electronics and just get out on the open road. And it's very meditative for me. Uh, I find that I, I think of a lot of solutions to problems and have a, a lot of creative moments out on the, uh, on the trails and on the, on the rides. And then I also do fun group rides and, uh, and <laughs> it's fun. It's fun for me to get to the top of the hill first and look back on, on some other riders and think to myself, uh, you just got beaten by a herbivore. <laughs> I love that. The extra protein <laughs> through the vegetables, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> and I'm sure people ask you that, how you sustain your level of activity without meat. Is that right? Oh, yeah. The, the age-old question, where do you get your protein? Yes. There's so many answers. that it's, it's, If you're going to eat this way, it's, it's good to have answers to that question because you will be asked that. But uh, depending on my mood, I might say, few different things or uh, for while well, I'll ask them, well, where did the cow get the protein to make the steak? It ate grass, right? So I just, uh, I just eat, eat the plants myself. And then um, really as far as energy, I mean, if you think about the marathon runner who's carbo loading yes. uh, in preparation for the big race day, uh, the typical plant-based diet for weight loss is 80% carbohydrates, complex carbohydrates. 10% uh, fat and 10% protein. And so uh, it's a very carbohydrate heavy diet. So I'm carbo loading every day for and every day's race day. So I have lots and lots of energy uh, from my diet and it, uh, it suits me very well. Uh, so uh, other, other times someone might ask me like, well, oh, you know, where do you get your protein? And I say, I say, picture this. What if there was a drink? that uh, could take a person who was laying in bed and couldn't get out of bed. And if they drank this drink every day for a year, they could get up and walk. Would you like to know what drink that is and uh, how much protein it had? And they're like, oh yeah, what's that drink? I say, breast milk. <laughs> so if you think about it, uh, you know, you take a person, uh, an infant, <laughs> if they drink breast milk every day for a year and then they can get up and walk, think about, you know, uh, in, in parts of the world, some infants are primarily breastfed for or wholly breastfed for the first year of life. So think about the gains that a baby makes. Uh, it more than doubles its weight in the first year of life on breast milk. So there is definitely growth. Uh, you're not going to find any 25-year-old weightlifter in the gym uh, doubling their weight, right? Uh, so they can definitely make gains and make muscular gains. I mean, the baby starts out with little to no muscle tone and by the end of the you know it's raising its head and it's crawling and it's walking so it's making all sorts of muscular gains over the course of that year so what is the amount of protein in breast milk well it's one percent by weight and five to seven percent 
by calories. So it's like, that's all the protein that you need to have a wonderful first year of life. Uh, who, who are these weightlifters who are pounding like 30% of their 40% of their calorie intake as a protein? It's like they're never going to make the same gains as a baby. <laughs> so uh, it's really astonishing. And, and there are studies, there are um, uh, metabolic ward studies. So studies that uh, put people in the hospital, uh, monitor their, their intake and their weight and their all sorts of me metabolic factors to, to determine their protein needs. And our protein needs as human beings, especially as adults, once our growing years are done, are, are pretty minimal. Uh, and you can really thrive uh, and do fine on much less protein than people think that we need. So that's the long answer to your question. I, I can throw you another. There's a, there's a, you know, the uh, those those metabolic board studies uh, for the for an adult male, it's 56 grams per day. Um, so I I say um, I say to those guys that are are lifting weights or are, you know, I have one young man who told me his um, his coach told him that he was a football player that he needed 200 grams of protein per day. Yes. So I said, I said, how much muscle do you think you could put on with the ideal workout program and the ideal protein intake? How much muscle per month? And he didn't know. And it's actually been studied. It's been about a pound of muscle per month. You can actually do more if you take steroids too. But for a natty uh, weightlifter, you can put on about a pound a month. So I say, okay, so in about nine months, um, you could put on nine pounds of muscle. Yeah. Uh, what else can someone do in nine months is uh, make a baby, right? So a woman making a baby, um, she, a typical baby in this uh, country weighs about eight, eight and a half pounds when they're born. So yeah, about the same, right? Um, so how much protein does a woman making a baby for nine months need to make that eight or eight pound baby? And the answer is 72 grams uh, it's been studied, 72 grams of protein per day is a recommended daily allowance for a woman, just a little more than a man, uh, and only 72 grams of protein. So I told this young man on the football team whose coach was telling him to drink or eat 200 grams of protein per day, I said, go back and tell your coach you're not, that, you're not pregnant. You don't need that much protein. Because <laughs> which, which, which do you think takes more, more protein intake, to build a bicep or to build a baby? build a baby. So uh, I, I got a lot of snappy answers to uh, the protein question. I'm sure you did. And I'm just curious, would you share with our listeners what a typical day for you looks like in terms of food? Oh, I eat a lot. <laughs> um, I enjoy, um, well, my, my daughter and I are on a smoothie kick lately. We, so we're starting the day off with lots of smoothies. Uh, lots of bananas and oats in there and uh, maybe cherries or um, or mango slices and stuff like that. There's always fruit on the table at my house, so we're always eating fruit too. Um, uh, today I had a, a sandwich with hummus and snap peas in it for a little crunch. Um, I had a whole bunch of peanuts right out of the shell. Uh, I'm, looking, I'm looking at my lunch bag now. I got an apple for later. Uh, but just a lot of whole foods, plant-based, but it's a lot. Uh, I, I, I admit that I get a, a very bulky diet, but it's kind of low, lower calorie density stuff. So, um, I get to feel full a lot and, um, maintain my weight and have a lot of activity and energy for, for trying to be a good dad and trying to be a good Dr. Herbivore and trying to, uh, bike as far as I want to go. Sounds perfect to me. Where can our listeners find out more about you and your practice, Dr. Edinger? Oh, thanks for asking. I do have the drherbivore.com website, doctor spelled out. Um, on that website, I have a blog also where I've written about um, some of the topics that we've talked about today and a lot more. There's some, for educational purposes, some entertaining blog posts also. So uh, you can go on the website and learn more. I hope in the near future to have some live events where I can give some educational content. I do enjoy talking to the community. I've spoken uh, at uh, like Grand Rounds, at hospitals, to doctors, to nurses, to community groups uh, about uh, the benefits of plant-based diets. So I hope to start doing that on live events 
so you can actually go onto my website and, and sign up for the mailing list to hear about those. And then I do have the Dr. Herbivore practice. I'm licensed in New York and New Jersey, so I can see patients ages 2 to 21 who are struggling with obesity or looking for some help with weight management uh, through telemedicine. So it's an entirely online practice. So we can meet, I can order labs, we can go over results, and we can start to work together. Again, me trying to help someone who has an internal locus of control uh, find the right path that works for them. That's great. Dr. Edinger, what a fascinating conversation that we had today. Your perspective, your passion, your evidence-based approach to such an important topic is truly refreshing. And I'm sure the listeners will walk away with some eye-opening information. I know I definitely did. Well, thank you very much. This was a lovely, wonderful conversation, and it was, it was a pleasure. And I do hope you will come back. Hopefully, we can do an Insta Live together and, and put more information out there because we can't talk enough about this topic. Am I right? Yes, yes. Uh, there's a lots of information, uh, lots to share. Wonderful. So look out for part two for the listeners today. And to the listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Baby Steps Nutrition Podcast with your host, Argavan Nilforush. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into all the tips and tricks you and your family can use to make daily life a little easier. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please leave a rating and review, share with others, and follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Baby Steps Nutrition Podcast. As always, you can head over to babystepsnutrition.com to sign up for our email list, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. See you next time. Tune in. Feel great.